welcome to the Comfort Monk Podcast. Today we've got another in our uh, small mini-series, if you will, about our Gratitude Volume 2 compilation that we put out back in November. Uh, We wanted to talk to some of the artists that contributed songs to it and get a little background on... uh, you know, what songs they wrote, what, why they picked it, how they recorded it, stuff like that. And, uh, I got the chance to talk to Chuck Treese, which was really fun. Um, you know, uh, Dylan and him keeping pretty close contact. Uh, and I've, you know, talked to him in passing, but, uh, it was nice to, to sit down and kind of have a nice chat with him. Um, he, uh, you know, he's, he's famous for Mick Rad at Bad Brains and his new project is Bing Crosby, uh, which is a improvised, uh, he called it space rock, which I think is a good description of it. Um, and he's doing it with his son, which is really cool. And I, I know from when you talked to him, Dylan, um, he talked about uh, growing up and playing drums in his dad's band. And it's cool that now his son gets to play drums in his dad's band as well. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I never even really put that together. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, yeah, and uh, we're lucky enough that, you know, I think we're going to be working with Chuck on, on that release a little bit and helping in whatever small way we can, but uh, we definitely kind of think of Chuck as part of the bigger Comfort Monk kind of growing family. Um, but, yeah, it, it's it's really, really great music that he's doing. It's him and Kieran, his son, like he said, and they've been traveling, playing all these sort of, outdoor distance gigs um some of them with their friend g love um but yeah and uh, i think he might be rolling through here in town uh in columbia soon so hopefully uh we'll be able to cross paths when the world is here but yeah guys thanks for tuning in this is our episode part two of the gratitude volume two retrospective featuring chuck trees We'd like to say thank you to all the Comfort Monk listeners out there uh, from from me and Dylan uh, from the bottom of our hearts. We just heard that uh, the Free Times Post and Courier put uh, their number one and two South Carolina records of 2020 are both uh, Comfort Monk releases. The Stagbriar's Suppose You Grow and Dear Blanca Perched, which are... Uh, Comfort Monk releases number one and two that we're really excited uh, about this year. And we, we appreciate all your support for the podcast, but also for the music that we're getting out there. And if you would like to support us, uh, we have launched a Patreon. Um, if you can give a buck or two a month, uh, it'll go towards our hosting fees and any other incidental costs of the podcast. And uh, either way, we'll keep on doing this and keep talking to interesting people for y'all to listen to. Yeah, thanks so much, everybody. And if you uh, are looking for a little more musical content in your life, we put out a couple compilation records this year as well. Um, You can find both of those at comfortmonk.bandcamp.com or on Spotify. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of great music on there that we're really excited about. But thanks so much. Okay, well, we originally...
how the song basically got its start, Weakness 2020, is from a song that I wrote in 1985. Like I was the first version of McRad, um, which is myself, Zeke, Ethan, and Tristan, which we recorded Dominant Force together. And like we had one other EP. Well, basically at the end of that, like the summer of 84, the band had broken up. And I decided to move to San Francisco to hang out with Tommy Guerrero. And I started writing a bunch of different songs. And then as I'm deciding to like move back to Philly, I spent six months in San Francisco just to hang out and skate Golden Gate Park, you know, with all those guys from Thrasher and a bunch of other spots. This song, which ended up being Weakness in the Pal Peralta videos and, and, and basically in public domain, I started hearing this riff in my head, so I just kind of went with it and, you know, regrouped McRad and we released Absence of Sanity and that was one of the main tracks on that. But basically the song really stems from listening to a lot of rock and roll, a lot of reggae, a lot of early MTV as like a young kid and then it all of a sudden started to kind of show its head like I was probably around like 23, 24, you know, when that happened. Age-wise, I may be a couple of years off. So basically that's the the premise of it, and then Stacy bringing it to life with you know his whole thing with skating. So years and years later, basically last year, the year of COVID, I had to homeschool my son before that, and during kind of like this time last year, we decided to do a live web show. It was basically after March, where we basically went to uh, Vegas for, not just went to Vegas, we went to Arizona for a show and played on March 7th, which is Kieran's birthday. He's also in, in Bing Crosby with, with myself. And then March 13th is when they shut down LA for COVID. And then we, instead of it being a graduation trip, it, it turned into a, just getting out and getting back to Philly. Mm-hmm. And I think a month or two of that, of COVID happened, I decided to go into the studio with Karen and just kind of freestyle, just just some jams, just myself on baritone guitar, Karen playing drums, and I had a you know mic, and I was going through two different amps. I went through a bass amp, which is a Fender, a Cube, and a hundred watt Cube, two hundred watt Cube, and like a twenty five watt box amp. So we had this kind of like all inclusive like live room sound and Milk Boy which is like a venue and also a recording studio in Philadelphia, they decided to do one of the first, like, hey, let's just, you guys pre-record your stuff and let's just go out and, you know, put this stuff up as like live shows. So I just decided to say, you know, I'll put my phone up, record it, and, you know, we'll release the footage to them. And that's where Weakness 2020 was kind of created. I just started playing a riff and started just kind of talking about the frustration of just, this new COVID life, you know what I mean? Just, just a person just kind of walking in down the street of being an artist, but then all the, like the, the, you know, the signs instead of them being kind of bright, like they are in Vegas or any like big city, they're all just kind of dim. So to me, I felt like weakness 2020, we were trying to find ourselves through music. And I was just kind of explaining, this is the first time my son and I have played since March 7th. And, you know, it's like a month or two, you know, later, that we were just regrouping, but we were just getting used to this whole web performance thing, which I had never really looked at as like, this may be the format for a long time. So we recorded 
about 20 minutes worth of music. And as I started developing a riff around what Karen was doing, and I got rid of my just lyrics of just banter, which is the first part of Weakness 2020, I started singing Weakness over the guitar riff that I was playing. So I just kind of just transposed my lyrics to what Karen was doing instead of just playing the typical riff from you know, weakness, which is that everyone knows it, but I figured like, why, why not do something different? Mm-hmm. But once that was done, Milk Boy puts it up. I decide a month or two later after listening to another bunch, I was like, you know what? I need to do backing vocals on it and, and put bass on it. Cause we multi-tracked it in my friend's studio. This guy, Rich, Rick Frederick, which is, he has a studio called Noya Sound. It's a production studio also, songwriter studio, not kind of like a regular, just ran out and go record your bands. So we, I had the pressure of, if I'm going to do this web thing, it should be something that I can go back and retrack on, but I never, I didn't go in and go, you know what, I'm just going to do another version of Weakness. It just kind of just happened. And then me thinking about it, it was like, well, I, I need to be the bass player now on it, and I need to be the extra vocalist on it, but I want to keep it really raw and open. And so we more or less just trimmed down the best part of that 20-minute jam and where it made the most sense. And I was like, okay, now I'm going to formulate the sound around what myself and Karen do when we just say, okay, let's just go for it. You know, and most of our shows have been that where we just, you know, we just start, we just start and, and, and make the best of what we're, you know, getting at. I just go into back into the studio and just, you know, kind of revamp everything and make it best. There's not that much editing that goes on other than just cropping things out. We kind of leave it like a train of thought, kind of almost like improvising, you know, for like if it'd be a punk rock Coltrane thing, you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah, that's, that makes that's me awesome. kind of sense. I, I like it. Uh, you know, you mentioned Kieran, uh, and it's, it's cool because the song itself is multi-generational, because, you know, you did it with McRad and now you're doing an updated version and the people playing on the song are also multi-generational too. I think that's super cool. Uh, Thanks. And you, um, you know, I'm sure that you're, you're Kieran's first, uh, you know, musical influence, you know, when he was growing up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, what what's it like to, uh, you know, to play music with family and to you know, raise a kid around music? Um, I, I, I think kids being into music, you know, regardless of, of family is amazing. Um, I was blessed enough to have like two sons that are really into it. My oldest son, Isaac Treese, is, he's, his name is DJ Swisher. He used to, he does more juke bounce, kind of like production DJ stuff, but he started out as a metal drummer and we started playing together. I mean, Kieran was really, really little. So Kieran, was able to see us play but I let Isaac go on and do his band and do himself and get out of the band and DJ. But Kieran was the one at age four. He was, I had him in school of rock. So he was able to kind of like get his guts up with his friends as far as playing songs and learning covers and, and, and dealing with that till age 17. And then what I would do with Kieran outside of what most people would kind of want to do is just, keep it open and improvise and not really work on song structure, just work on kind of song vibes and kind of pulling at each other. So I think that as long as you can create enough space for your child or the person that you're vibing with, I think it's good. I mean, it all at the end of the day is, is, is still a risk because there's a lot of emotions in music and 
And now I'm learning that I have to honor the openness of it because there's songs that are recorded and and people like to hear certain things, but I now have to go with the premise of like, yo, we freestyled most of this stuff, so we'll get as close as we can to it. But, you know, and until the person that's younger who's learning from the mentor or the person who's more seasoned is ready for that rigid lockdown, I this is what I'm learning now, and just to be truthfully honest, I have to really watch my my own interactions so I don't feel like I'm having this dogmatic way of like, it's got to be this way, you, you know, you have to do it, you know, and I understand that for arrangements, but when you when you open up the palette for people to be really creative on the moment and then all of a sudden you, you start capturing the, the creativity, sometimes the live shows have to be a little bit different. You know what I mean? Because the moment, the, the, most of our moments aren't rehearsed. You know what I mean? I know this is long-winded, mm-hmm. but just so parents can be clear that if you're, if you're going to have an open canvas with people being vibrant and and really creative with music and art, then that also goes into the aftermath of of that. As far as like how do you represent it or how do you recreate it? You know, and that's a very tricky situation versus if we just say, okay, we're going to keep it the really strict song structures. And that gets boring for young people. You know what I mean? I think, you know, especially when you really have to love that if you want that, you know, and not that I'm saying that he doesn't love it, but I'm realizing that anyone should think about all sides of being creative with a younger mindset, because there's different things that that's, there's a different synapsis that happens within the young mind versus someone that's already seasoned. There's, there's something that's different. I can't explain it. There's just something that happens. You know what I mean? So I'm still learning. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I know you yourself uh, got started playing drums in your dad's band. Uh, yeah. Uh, when you were very young as well. Um, just mm-hmm. like Kieran. So that, that's super mm-hmm. cool. Um, yeah. I think, I think that's super true. Um, you know, I've been in high school bands and I've seen a million high school bands play and stuff like that. And they're really use the word vibrancy. There definitely is like a vibrancy to like, Hey, we're going to make something and it's going to be different this time than it was last time. Right. Uh, Cause we just right. got to keep, got to keep moving on it, you know? Uh, right. So you said this is like, y'all recorded it in a songwriting studio so you have a little bit more kind of like freedom to, to, to play around and figure out songs and stuff. Uh, do you want to talk a little yeah. bit about, um, the, the upcoming Bing Crosby stuff and how weakness 2020 fits into, uh, into all that? Yeah. The, the newer music that I've been recording with Kieran over at Noise sound the, the newer Bing Crosby, I, I kind of call them space rock tunes. Um, there, we changed the setup in the room just where the, you know, where the amps were versus the drums. It's still two people in the room live. And I was pushing the volumes a little bit more, being a little bit more tame, you know, the first time in because we were basically filming it and also needing to make it a performance. These other recordings are just us raw going in. I think we did two different recording sessions and we just kind of went at it pretty hard and I tracked bass on it like about a month ago, a month and a half ago. And I just finished all the kind of spacey leads on it last night. And there's going to be a couple of vocals 
that are going to appear, but it's pretty much the same process. It's just that Rick Frederick, who's the main engineer, he's also a songwriter and producer himself. Um, we've been doing a bunch of things with mastering and mixing that this time because I, I played him, uh, there's a, a album called, a uh, band called Can, and I'm really into what they're doing. And I, and I heard the process of what they were getting at, but it was, it wasn't until Rick told me last night, he's like, yo, when you sent me that record, you know, that they have that one title song, you're losing, you're losing, you're losing, la, 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 la. it's like a really nice song. And I thought that they, they really went after it, like as a songwriting thing, but he said, no, dude, I've read up on it. Like they jammed for six hours and then they edited six down to one. And that was all going to tape. And I was like, he was like, wow, man. I was like, there's only 23 minutes per reel of tape. So that's like, I can't imagine like the editing process yeah. of that record. But when you listen to that record, it's, it's, excuse my language, it's fucking banana. It's like the, 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 that band is like the best concept of like, wow, this could be psych rock, but it's a little bit more heady and it's a little bit more out there. So you would literally have to get into a studio for six hours to open the, the pallets up with all these great musicians. And I'm pretty sure they had vibes, but it's amazing. They put, they, they took six to one. And so that's basically what we did was we, we recorded about say an hour's worth of music. And then we took the best bits out of it, but I didn't even know that they, they can did that. You know what I mean? So now Rick, we were talking last night. He was like, Hey, we should come back in for another six hours and, and really, you know, you know, start experimenting with it. So I was like, okay, you know, so I'm, I'm starting to realize the process of having these records that may sound like they're written in a songwriting structure, have more like actual, like energy into it. Like you're trying to grow like a, like a, a vegetable or you're trying to grow, you know, whatever you're, you're trying to, you're trying to bake something into existence and then you're going to take the bits that you want out of it. You know what I mean? Or you're going to let, someone else eat from the pie that, that you're making. It's not just something that you're, 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 you're kind of getting in on. Cause most songwriters, if this is my vision and they'll, they'll add something and they'll change a chorus or a pre-chorus or a bridge or something of the verse or a lyric. But when you're leaving it open to music and the, the continuity of like how everyone vibes in a room, I mean, you're going to get a whole completely different record when people are just noticing that they can just vibe and someone else is going to say, let's, you guys do your thing and let me do my thing and then we'll all come back and make the record what it needs to be. That's what this new process is, is taking the colors, putting them up on the canvas, smearing them all around and then saying, okay, what works and what doesn't work? And then what can we add on to this smear of kind of like, you know, this, this whole picture that we're smearing all over the place. How can we make it into kind of a painting? Yeah, that's awesome, man. It, it, it kind of, you know, you're opening up people, letting them be creative and do their own thing. Uh, and I, I think that's got to create, you know, some sense of trust between, you know, you and Rick and you and Kieran and you and anybody else that's uh, involved in it. You kind of just have to, you know, let people let people loose and see it, see what happens, which I know, you know, uh, for songwriters is sometimes hard to kind of you know, let, let that happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's pretty heavy. Yeah. That's awesome. So 
So is it is it totally improvised? Do y'all go into the studio with any basic, you know, verses and choruses or anything written? Or is it straight up, you sit down at your instruments and see what comes out? Yeah, straight up pretty raw. Yeah, we just like, maybe we'll do something that we handed, like something that we jammed at a skate park, but pretty much everything we went into, like other, there's one song, Be Your Friend, that we wrote together um, when Kieran was real young and I went and played all the instruments on it. And then we did another version that was, you know, it was all right, but this last version, we went in and just, you know, knew the song, because it's pretty much like a Ramon song. It's A, B, A, B, and, you know, a little bridge and then out. And mm. that's the only one that we knew that was going to be the way it is. But, but that still changed because, you know, I was used to the certain amount of bars per verse and per kind of like the pre-chorus of the song. And, you know, it just got, it just stretched out in the studio. So I, I went along went along with it but it's most of the time it's pretty much like i'm checking my tones and i'm making sure that like i guess the only thought process that i was going into the studio with that made it more songwriting-esque wise was like i knew that kieran was like playing on a set of rogers that rick owned and the great set of drums and and he had one of the a snare of mine for weakness 2020 which was like a skateboard snare that was made by it's called the skateboard company. I can't remember the exact name, but so that was my, my input was like, he should be on something that sounds remotely from the seventies, which is this great Rogers kit. It's going to make him sound more like kind of a bigger boy drummer, you know, like big boy, like big shoulders. And that was weakness 2020. So what I did for these other Bing cars, he finally was able to buy a Rogers snare and I figured, like, yo, Kieran, let's just take him in the studio and not say anything to Rick about it and see what it sounds like. And it ended up being, like, that sounding snare for how he plays and what we're doing in that in, in, in that in, environment. Not to mention he, he owns a snare, so now we can take a part of the studio and bring it out live, you know? So that's more or less a part of songwriting that I think that's really important for drummers and musicians, that if you're going into a situation where it's a little bit more rigid and you know, the engineer and the producer are more or less like, well, what's your favorite sound or what's your favorite symbol or what's your favorite guitar or bass? I mean, that is just as important as the person writing the bars or writing the lyrics or writing the melody. Because if there's a, if there's, if I'm going to make sure that a 17, 18 year old drummer sounds more seasoned just by changing the drum kit around his style of, and okay, once you see the drum kit, now let's buy the most important piece of the drum kit, which is a snare drum. Now, as soon as, once you own that, that's your sound. So you can really take that sound and, and, and blend it into the 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, and then shift into Ludwig or shift into Slingelin or shift into the hybrid drums that are more outside of the box of sounding. To me, Rogers they always make you sound like you love what you're playing. I don't know what it is about those drums. I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's other drums that come close, Gretsch, you know, there's tons of them, but for some reason in the studio, people overlook Rogers and they're the best sounding drums for, especially if the engineer knows what they're doing. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I used to, uh, practice at a buddy's house, uh, whose dad had a set of Rogers that I played sometimes. And that was, Mm-hmm. It was always awesome. Uh, felt like Led Zeppelin yeah. a little bit. 
exactly what it is. Yeah, <laughs> for glue. Sure. Uh, so what, what kind of, uh, you know, when you're coming up, you know, now, now you're playing uh, guitar, but you're also a, a, you know, super seasoned veteran drummer. What, what was your, when you were 17 years old or whatever, uh, what was your kind of drum set like? Um, the, the drums that I have was a, a Royce drum kit. My mom purchased for me. It was kind of like a knockoff of a Ludwig. She got at this uh, place called A Street Music in Philly. And I had it for a while. I had some Rototoms on it. And, you know, I was like a 22. I think it was like 12, 13, 16. You know, just typical, just like straight up like rock and roll kit that I had. And then I ended up selling it. And then I didn't really get a drum kit from like basically... I think it was like 16 that I sold it until like when I joined the first version of McRad, I just got into skateboarding and I always kept playing drums and I would just, you know, ball, you know, drums, drums from friends when I had a gig or something like that, like playing in a cover band. Cause I started playing in cover bands when I was about 14, you know, just around in Delaware, you know, just doing my thing. Mm -hmm. So once McRad started, since we switched around, you know, people just in, in the band and instruments, you know, people was like, hey, you guys can have this drum kit. And I was like, oh, OK, I finally got a drum kit to practice on again. And it was just like a little once again, kind of like a voice, like, you know, knockoff, you know, just drum kit. And that was like the first drum kit that we played CBs on. It was the first drum kit that we did, uh, you know, a lot of different things. So I didn't really start getting nicer drums until like. I think it was like when I recorded Dreamin', which was like probably around 89, 88. I mean, I, I had a couple of different kits, but it wasn't like, it's just the budget and just the whole punk rock lifestyle of me to just kind of like, let me just figure out what I'm doing on this guitar right now. You know what I mean? I'll keep the drums around, but I wasn't really trying to be like, you know what? I really need a solid set of drums. That I, so if I go into the studio, I have my identity. I didn't figure that out until many records and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I think I need to own my own real drum tone. You know what I mean? It was before I was like, I'll just use whatever. That's the punk rock the punk rock way. You know what I mean? And and you don't think like, you know, why did Reed from COC sound great? Because Reed always played great drums. Like he just played great sounding drums. So when you lay into him, you'd be like, fuck man, that guy can fucking play and he sounds great. You know what I mean? He's just and Reed is one of my favorite uh, outside of like a Dave Grohl, because Dave Grohl comes from the punk rock thing, and he already had his the same tones he used in Nirvana. He, I saw him with Scream when he's playing drums with them, and he sounded exact like exactly the same. And I felt like as a punk rock kid, you know, I was there playing guitar with Underdog, and we're opening up the show, and I was like, "Wow, Scream sounds great." I've seen him with their regular drummer, and and the, we're all homies and everything, and nothing against Dave Grohl, but I was like, "Wow, this." As a, as me as a drummer, I, I stepped into like he just made it easy for himself to sound great in a punk rock setting. Versus if he was just a drummer in a rock band, you'd have to bring a little bit more to the vibe other than a great set of drums. You know what I mean? Punk rock bands weren't used to every drummer having a great set of drums, and and Grohl was just ahead of the curve. And so he just mm -hmm. took what he did with Scream and melded it into you know Nirvana, Nirvana, and then that and the Foo Fighters, and and that's the type of thing that. I'm trying doing my best to show Kieran that I didn't have shown to me because my dad was more of a live guy, not a studio guy. The studio, you can't think punk rock. I mean, you can with the the, the energy, but if you if, if a microphone is picking up your tones and and the tones sound 
less than, then the microphone's not going to make the rest of the tone unless you're just such a creative drummer or creative tone person that you can make these set of weird drums sound great. You know, I mean, a set of great sounding drums is only going to be that much better in, in, in the end process. It's just who's mixing it and who's getting into getting into the sounds. And and hopefully, and this is not too long winded, but I just it's the first time that I started to think about why I made decisions when I knew from a real drummer what real drums sound like. But when I got into punk rock, I just went with the ethos of what punk rock guys were doing. Like, we'll just fucking play on anything. You know what I mean? Like, fuck it. You know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah, Tam is great. Well, Tam a rock star? Yeah, that's cool. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's what went around. You know what I mean? And, and there's no disrespect to any drums, but now that I go back and I listen to those drum tones, I was like, wow, these kids don't have to go through that. Now they can choose their tones and they can, outside of like sound replacement and all that other stuff, like you can actually have a conversation with a drummer and be like, I don't, I want the people to hear my press rolls and my ghost notes and this and that, even if it's in a punk rock setting or even if it's in a hardcore setting. There's, these drummers today are just so, they're just so more into why they sound the way they sound versus we were just like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> it's like just get me in the studio i got this energy i want to let it out like that whole thing you know yeah it's interesting and everything you know uh with globalization and you know uh all that kind of stuff all music instruments are so cheap now and it's kind of crazy right. um <laughs> i mean of course you can get expensive stuff but like even you know, I'm not that old. Even like the first guitars that I had access to, uh, right. like cheap, you know, cheap starter guitars were so bad compared to yeah. a $200 Squire that you can buy today. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's not fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, 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 the whole, the whole gear ratio thing today is, because I've, I've actually bought those Squires for my own personal use, and this guy, David Ivory, who I've worked with, and he's a Grammy-nominated and Grammy, you know, winner for The Roots. You know, he produced You Got Me. I mean, like, the last bass that he's purchased with the help of me through my friend of D-Town Guitars, you know, here in Doylestown, it's a $100 Squire that he had used, and luckily it just had a, you know, it was just the active pickup in it. And I was like, yo, Dave, I had this bass, you know, just put some flat wounds on it and let's just take the pick guard off of it because the plastic's too heavy on those bases and it makes the bass sound heavy. So I just found a way to chop it off and make it work. And he's still, I mean, probably the first session that day paid for the bass and he's been recording with that bass for like the past maybe eight years. And it's like, this is my favorite bass. And I, we did not have options on the market like that other than if you bought a, like a a Japanese, you know, Squire and you got it for a great price back then that you're holding on to it now, because today there's way too expensive and still probably some of the best Fender guitars and basses that I've ever played. But, you know, just that market is so gone that the newer market of the $100, $200 guitar and, and the real light bass amps and it, it, just the, you know, massage bills alone with gear. You know, I'm I'm happy that people have a better approach. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. No more paying chiropractors uh, after lugging around a 150 pound bass amp. 
Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. Well, Chuck, I know, uh, I know you got a bunch of people waiting to to jam with you, but I appreciate you uh, taking some time out to to talk to me about your song, and uh, we're definitely really excited to let the world hear the rest of the Bing Crosby stuff. Killer, we're excited too. And Kieran just got back in. He wants to say, want to say what's up, Kieran. Hi, Kieran. Um, okay, yeah, we're, we're we're totally excited and we're you know ready to make it the best we can make it. Hell yeah! Well, I'll talk to you later, man. <laughs> All right, have a good one. All right, you too. Bye. All right, bye bye. Uh, today we're talking to Aaron Burke of the band Glass. Um, I know that both Eddie and myself really enjoy their music. Uh, you know, I've gotten to know the members of that band pretty well over the years, playing tons of shows together. But um, you know, we never really had the chance to sit one on one and and just you know get to the bottom of what Aaron's backstory is. We kind of originally started this episode thinking we were going to talk mostly about uh the song that we used of theirs, Open Concept Continued, uh, that opens up the Comfort Monk Gratitude Volume 2 compilation, but uh, quickly realized when talking to Aaron that there was so much more I wanted to know about him. Um, you know, he moved here from Ireland whenever he was, you know, in late high school, and uh, his time before coming to the States is was really interesting um, as far as like bouncing around and what it was like growing up there for him. You know, I'll leave most of that for the interview itself, but it was really, really great getting to know him better and to, to have this uh, opportunity to just speak with him and learn a little more about Aaron. He's made great music that I've loved for a long time. So I'm really excited about this one. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed listening to uh, y'all's conversation. Uh, I don't, I don't know him personally like you do. And I, uh, you know, I always, I always knew that there was something going on behind the scenes, because uh, you know every Glass album is super uh, like artistically focused and driven, and uh, hearing him talk about like the actual like songwriting concepts, uh, I don't want to call it an, a concept album because that you know makes you think of Moody Blues or something, but uh, definitely there's a lot of thought and care given to how all of their music is structured and written and stuff. And it was super inspiring. Yeah. I, I was kind of blown away at just how thoughtful it was actually. Uh, it was you no know, when I asked him, uh, you know, what, what's the story behind this? I certainly didn't expect something that, uh, you know, not that I, I mean, I guess you expect it from the music that there's definitely a lot going on thematically there, but I just, it, like you said, it was so focused as far as uh, what they were going for. It was really cool to hear about. But, yeah, everybody, thanks for tuning in. And this is our episode with Aaron Burke of Glass. Enjoy. Well, dude, I appreciate you talking to us, and I appreciate you putting a song on the comp for us, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, I wanted to say I, I, I really appreciate you, man. I, I know the Compliment Monk thing is a joint effort between you and someone else or maybe another few people, but uh, 
the the amount of work that you've been doing uh uh, I think people really recognize it. It doesn't go unnoticed. So uh, I really appreciate you uh, doing everything you're doing. Well, thanks, man. It means a lot. Yeah, me and Eddie have we've been trying to stay pretty busy with it, man. It's it's definitely a good time to have a little pet project uh, to keep you busy, especially since, as I know you can relate, uh, not having shows really going on and just got to stay busy somehow just to you know keep your mind at ease a little bit. Well, and it it, uh, it seems like it's really taken off. I mean, you've interviewed some people that uh, I can't believe. You know, it's really it's 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 great. Well, thanks, man. Yeah, we're trying, man. We're gonna try to stay at it, man. And it helps having people like yourself who are down to contribute to the cause. And yeah, man, I've been wanting to chat with you for a while. So it's it's. I mean, regardless of the show, just to catch up. So kind of yeah, two birds with one stone here. Oh yeah. Well, dude, you've been super busy this year, man. What is it? Have you? How many glass records are you putting out this year? Uh, we were aiming for four, and uh, I always try and tell people that we weren't effective, or that we weren't affected by the virus and stuff. But I suppose we were because we were aiming for four, but uh, we, we we did three. So uh, the last one, soundings and fathoms and feet. Um, that's the last one of this year and we're uh, setting up plans to start uh, recording our next one uh, in late February well don't be hard on yourself man three is, is is no small feat in itself you know oh yeah and I've loved all of them man I mean I've always been you know a big fan of what you guys are doing but yeah it's really inspiring to see you guys be just crazy productive this year and I don't know, I was missing glass in my life, so I appreciate the uh, the heavy dosage of it this year. Oh, yeah, anytime, Dylan. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, well, dude, so the main reason we're, we're chatting with you and a few other people um, who contributed to the comp, we did a little retrospective episode uh, for the first compilation where we kind of chatted with people about the songs they did, so I kind of wanted to pick your brain about uh, the song that you put on the comp and just kind of hear, you know, learn about it top to bottom, man. What what what's the story behind that song? I, well, I would say that the the song um, it demands uh, it demands the album's context. Uh, uh, the album Wilson and Mauve, we were working working on it for a long time. Uh, I'd say we're probably writing the songs for three or four years. And I used to think that the album was structured like a, like a single peak, like two low points, one high point, and a low point. And I thought the high point was stretch marks. Um, it wasn't until I actually did a, a drawing of the um, thematic structure of the album where I realized the album actually has two peaks or three peaks and two valleys which is a W uh, like wilting perfect um, <laughs> and the the first war, the first peak is uh well the, I would say the, the the main theme to the album are the main themes in the album are pa- paranoia and shame and guilt and uh attempt at redemption 
And so your first peak is heavy fields, which is um, the recognition of guilt, which it seems we're all born in in Western society, which uh, it's not a critique of it. It's just I think uh, it's, it's recognition of that guilt that we're born with. And the second peak is the rite of passage song or the losing of virginity song or the initiation song. And the third peak is the uh, redemption song uh, in which love wins and uh, things are worth it. And with uh, in between those three peaks, you have two valleys. And the first valley, I would say, is the valley of innocence and <clears throat> optimism and nature and naivety and i would say after the second peak which is the rite of passage you lose your innocence and become unnaive and enter the valley of experience and cynicism and nihilism and politics which descends through ceremonial garbs and triage. And its lowest point is this song, Open Concept, which was featured on this compilation. And the song to me is um, it's the epitome of hopelessness and um, nihilism. You know, it's not um, the last line of the song is, tired last sigh which is just the feeling of giving up and in my mind anyway it wasn't it was released in a context that in a, in a social context which i think to a lot of people probably seemed appropriate but it was actually written about two or three years ago but that last line tired last sigh for me, ended up becoming the, the the tired last sigh of George Floyd. Um, but then after that, and, and you can't really talk about the song Open Concept without talking about um, the first, essentially the first section of the two-part section, which is triage and open concept, which... Um, um, The, the open concept idea came from uh, a thing I heard a girl say that uh, was a Parkland shooting survivor uh, when she was talking about <clears throat> how the kind of lunchroom area of schools um, or like the common ground where kids have lunch in schools is uh, set up in like an open concept design allowing... Uh, uh, allowing a an armed intruder to spray as many people as he or she may desire, and I thought that was an interesting thing, and uh, it reminded me of uh, living in Scotland, where the, the the cathedral city I lived in Scotland is a as a place called Dunblane, which is really a town, but um, they call it a city because it, it has a cathedral, uh, which is a thing they do in the UK. The Queen comes and 
I guess if the cathedral is nice enough, <laughs> they they uh, they call it a city. But where I lived at uh, Dunblane, um, there was a massacre there in um, 1996, where a man went in and killed 16 tri- children. And um, I I knew some of the survivors from that, and I was just kind of making these connections between because I remember in Scotland. We moved into a new high school. Uh, that that shooting was before I lived there in, in Dunblane. It was it was four or five years before I lived there, but uh, the effects of it were fucking poignant and definitely was one of the def- uh, the defining factors of that cathedral city. Um, but we moved in uh, uh, when I went to high school there. I had two years in the old school, and then they built a new school. And the moment we entered the new school, I remember everyone saying it felt like a prison or something. And it turned out that the high school was actually designed by an architect that mostly designs prisons. And at the same time, too, there was a there was a, a documentary um, that was released, and it was on Netflix for a while. And it was a uh, how the um, I grew up Catholic when I when I was in Scotland. Uh, and Ireland when uh, when I was younger, um, the uh, the church we went to, uh, the priest was an Irishman, and <clears throat> he did a lot for, you know, he did, he uh, he did the funeral and stuff for the for the children that were killed in that massacre, and he he ended up um, actually building a relationship with the. Um, the the parish priest in um in uh I'm blanking uh Newtown gotcha and so this was all going on and I was making uh all these all these connections seemed apparent to me and in my lyrics I make a lot of conflations and uh you know um the open concept and triage one of the, one of the main aspects of those songs, what I was trying to recreate in the lyrics to those songs, were how difficult it is for us to receive information and parse out truth uh, these days. And I, I don't think the right thing to do is to create some kind of escape from it or. Um, try and achieve escapism through art to avoid the realities that ensue. Personally, I think what we should do is hold a mirror up to it, reflect it. And that's kind of what I was, what I was attempting to, to do. And now I, a point I I want to make is I, um, uh, no song that I've ever written or ever will write is for or against anything. For instance, I feel like a lot of people might look at that song as a con, that song entry as a condemnation of guns or something like that. Uh, it, is, it is not for or against anything. It is not left wing. It is not right wing. It is just, it is simply about. And, um, yeah, that, that's, um, that's what I wanted to do. It, it was just that, that, that's what was going on at, at the time I was writing those songs. It was all over the news. That's all you heard about. I, I guess Parkland was, 
18. I don't mean to, yeah, I also don't mean to be all uh, down about it. No, I, th- I think it it's absolutely, you know, more than relevant. And, I, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, it makes perfect sense that, that the lyrical themes are, you know, so heavy in nature and, and, you know, the music itself is so powerful and it has so, such a, like an arc to it as far as it's, uh, the composition of it. So having this context behind the lyrical themes kind of is just connecting a lot of dots for me, to be honest. So it's, it's sort of kind of all making sense as far as what the, what the, artistic direction was behind this man beautiful yeah uh did you record that one down here at jam room yeah um we did other than the last song there was wisteria uh we recorded it all there we tracked everything there other than the uh the samples and uh some of the vocals the vocals for this song I actually recorded with my friend Ruben, who recorded, you know Ruben? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, who recorded um, There Was Wisteria in his house. Uh, we, we we did demos. We were trying to scout uh, the album out to labels and stuff like that, so we recorded demos, I guess, in 2018 or 2019, and so those vocals were from, the, we, they were t- taken from those demos. Um, and I was trying to, I was trying to, trying to, I tried many, many times to record vocals, uh, jammer and i just couldn't i couldn't execute properly i i don't know i i ended up recording a lot of the rest of the vocals uh heavy fields triage garters um bows at my house uh just because that's really the only way i felt i could execute properly um but yeah everything else was uh Everything was tracked there in uh, Jam Room. The music for Open Concept was tracked there. But yeah, uh, I wanted to say, too, um, I was talking about There Was Wisteria being the uh, the kind of redemption aspect um, and how Open Concept is the lowest crevice of the valley of nihilism and cynicism. Um, the, the, the two valleys of the album are almost too two halves of an incomplete mind or thought process, I would say. So songs like Garters and, and Bows and Tangled East, the lyrics to those songs, which exist in the, in the valley of naivety, um, the, I would say they are opinionless songs. They have no opinion, which, which is a flaw. They're, they're, they're full of these kind of lyrics, um, spoken by a judge or an, an ideal or something. And then in the second half of the album, which is most exemplified in triage and open concepts, um, I would say it is too much opinion and arrogance and experience, like to to be so arrogant as to say something like, I could stage a coup. Like, it's certainly not from my perspective. But then after Open Concept, you have My Vocation, which is the first step out of the valley, which is, uh, yeah, the attempt, the attempt to find meaning through how a, a, search for, 
a search for morality and meaning through doing good work and uh, not judging not judging the people who were judged in songs like Triage and Open Concept. Right. I think, man, it, it seems like structuring the record around these peaks and valleys like you you, you mentioned, it, it's pretty brilliant, man, because it creates this nice juxtaposition and balance. You know, like you were saying, you might have a lot of one particular lyrical style or lyrical approach, but then, you know, there's a, it seems like there's almost always a, a song that goes the opposite direction that, so no matter how far you're pulled in one direction, you're pulled just as far back in the other direction, and it creates this, for the listener, this sort of like yo-yo effect that makes it where you don't you don't even have a chance to to lose interest you know because you're you keep being pulled back and forth and but in a way that i think serves the record really well and and you know just kind of demands your attention and that's why you know i know we were kind of toying around with a couple different songs to, to to potentially use for the uh for the comp but eddie and i were in love with using this one because it's such a bold statement and i know that you, you you know there's definitely something to be said about maybe it's out of the context of the full album it's a very different experience but i do love starting this compilation out with a you know a, you know it's not a short song and it's not a it's certainly not a mellow song you know like if you if you put this compilation on you are wide awake from track 1 and uh i think that Honestly, I, I, I love that it's just kind of a smack in the face as soon as, as the compilation starts, but in my humble opinion, a smack in the face in the best sort of way. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I really liked how the guy from Extra Extra Chill called it a rather aggressive track. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, appropriately totally. aggressive, especially if you're, you know, once you have this, the uh, once you're aware of the the lyrical themes that are being explored like it'd be hard to imagine uh, a different musical styling underneath that set of lyrics you know yeah and you know we, we weren't planning on releasing that as the single um yeah we'd been working on it for a long time and i kind of i kind of knew how the record would end up i think mostly and uh Open concept for a long time was just kind of out of the question because I didn't want to. Picking a single to release is a fucking really annoying task. I think it's it's really because you you want to give the people a taste of what the record would be like, but because open concept was the first single we released, but you want to give people a taste of what the record could be like, but you also don't want to reveal too much. And uh, for a long time, I felt Open Concept would, it's, it's by far the heaviest song on the album. And I didn't want to release the heaviest song on the album in the same way that Stretch Marks. I, I'd say that Stretch Marks is the, the centerpiece. And I, that, that was always out of the question because I felt that that would be re- revealing the entire heart of the album, which isn't something I wanted to do. But um, with, with the social 
uh, situation with the way it was back in, well, I mean, it still is now, but back in August, August, it, I, I felt a really, really cathartic song was the right type of song to release. Yeah, I think it, uh, I think it makes sense. It, it it's definitely, I mean, I, I would say maybe more than your average band. Uh, it helps to be sort of a completist when it comes to glass because, like you said, it just seems like a monumental task picking a single for a record that is this involved and this and covers this much musical territory as far or you know the landscape of it sonically is just it's a journey you know so to try to condense that down to one song and like you said not give too much away but give enough to to pique the interest or at least uh, accurately represent what you could expect from the record uh but uh regardless of that i do think that you you made the right choice, man, because that, that song just, it resonates with me, and I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking that, like, yeah, cathartic is the perfect word. When I heard it, I didn't realize how much I needed an aggressive song to, to like, balance out some of the frustration that, you know, all of us are definitely have more than a healthy share of right now, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, we... we... We we talked about releasing Tangled East as a single, which I still kind of like the idea of because, well, for a, a while I liked the idea of it because um, it was almost like a, it, it would almost be like a counteraction to the chaos that was going on in the social scene at that time. Not that that song isn't chaotic, but the general theme of Amor Fatih, love of fate thing, I, I think it's quite a peaceful song. <laughs> but I'm glad we did the complete opposite. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a side of, of you that, you know, a lot of people who may may only have experienced your music in the in the presentation of Glass, they haven't, you know, they don't even know, man. There's a whole a whole other side of you. Like, the time that we played together at Cabin Floor and I saw you play a solo set for the first time, it just opened my eyes that you were so not a one-dimensional artist, you know? Um, which brings me to another point I wanted to bring up was that in addition to all of these glass recordings that you've put out, you've put out some absolutely fantastic solo material as well and so i mean you're making me uh you're making i mean you're setting a pretty high bar for as far as uh just creative output in general but your quality control man it's through the roof mm, yeah thank you uh yeah the the um <clears throat> my solo stuff um With the, with the band, I, I feel a certain element of pressure to constantly be working on it. And, um, you know, I feel... <clears throat> I was in a really bad state after Accent came out, like, because I always... I love writing songs and writing music and um, 
I always saw myself as someone who would be a album a year kind of person. And, um, you know, the four year gap between accent and wilting and mauve put me in a, in a pretty bad, I, I wasn't feeling good about it. I, I, I kind of went through this period of, uh, being really dissociated from, uh, music in general, just like listening to music and enjoying music. Like, I don't know, like a sort of artistic depress depression, I suppose, if, if that doesn't sound too pretentious, like it, it was just, um, it had to get done. So I know it, it, may, it may appear to you that, you know, we released four albums this year, but we also had four years when we didn't release anything. And uh, so it was, it was almost playing catch up. And now, and now we're, we're too, you know, we're working on, we, we've got two albums that are pretty much written. And uh, uh, it's, they're, they're probably, collectively, they're probably 65 to 70% written, I would say. Right. And uh, so it feels good to kind of really be be in it and just daily trying to be at the table um, so that the inspiration will set in and uh, to just be uh, it's problematic too because we just feel really backlogged like before this record came out before Wilson came out we just felt really 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 backlogged like fuck how the fuck are we gonna <laughs> like these songs that are three albums away when we get to actually recording them. Right. Which, um, I mean, which it makes perfect sense that you would kind of fast track putting them out, you know what I mean? Put multiple out a year just because you're sitting on so much of it, you know? Yeah. And, and, and yeah, um, what, what you said about my solo album. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would say that w one thing, that I want to make apparent to the very small listener base that we do have is that I want people to know that you don't have to, you do not have to do one kind of thing or be one type of band or have an album that's just one kind of genre and kind of fetter yourself to musical coherence in a limited sense. Like I, I really think that people should be as free as they want and do whatever the fuck they want. It's like, we're, you know, we're talking about now cause we're trying to think of more ways to make money to fund these records. Um, we're talking about now I've always loved uh, Irish music, Irish folk music. So we're talking about, trying to set up like a once a month thing at the Irish pub here in Greenville where we play for a few hours, some, some Irish folk tunes, you know what I mean? And, uh, maybe when I was 16, uh, you know, if there was a gothy post-punk band or whatever, what, what I used to be into back then, if I heard that they had a side project that was an Irish folk band, it would put a bad taste in my mouth somehow. But I say fuck that, and I think people should do exactly exactly as much and whatever 
you want and that you can write a song about absolutely anything like no matter how trivial it may seem or how ridiculous it may seem you know if it's something that comes to you uh you should not censor yourself or limit yourself to what you should or should not do yeah man i mean i think that's that's the beauty of it all you know like no matter what you always start with a blank canvas so you know oh, use yeah. that uh you know let that work in your favor and you know do whatever your heart desires and and express yourself in whatever way feels right in the moment you know and i, I think that if anything you're leading by example in that and that i, I definitely don't think of I don't even think of glass as pigeonholed in any way. It's like it's it's not you as an artist. It's you in in whatever form you present yourself. You're not, you know, it's not like you're formulaic with any of your projects. You you kind of take that approach to everything you do. Um, and you know, even even the bands that you've been in over the years that you that weren't your primary songwriting projects. Like I always felt like your approach to playing bass when you were in art contest was uniquely yours but also ever evolving and uh yeah i mean I, I i find you to be quite the inspirational artist man yeah well thank you so, somehow uh we still managed to get uh compared to joy division even after putting out a song like tangled east and uh i don't I know if that's never uh, made, i would have never thought that maybe maybe uh tonally here and there but seems like a, a little bit of a stretch uh just because yeah, I, th I think it's just kind of lazy it's like a i was telling uh we, we i did an interview with uh a guy called alex peoples who write for writes for charleston city paper and i was telling him that i think the first thing that a music journalist looks at is the genre that the b band describes itself as on its facebook page and a lot of times, a lot of that shit's just really arbitrary, and a lot of times you can seem pretentious if you, uh, you know, I mean, we, you know, we just had, I understand the Joy Division thing with accent, and I'm not bitter about it anymore, Dylan, if, <laughs> if it. <laughs> If it might seem that I am. Well, that that being said, though, I mean, if you had to be compared, you know, whether it makes sense or not, if you have to be compared to a band, Joy Division is not the worst one to get lumped in with, for sure. I mean, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I I personally love them. I would not, I wouldn't consider you guys too close to that, but I, if there was a weird world where you guys were around in a, you know, before you were born and gigging at the same time as Joy Division, it would have made a hell of a bill. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. I, I, I just think it's just kind of lazy. It's just someone sees post punk and they say Joy Division because of the T-shirts. Right. Yeah. I mean, if they weren't saying that, they would say the Fall <laughs> or something. You know, just like easy comparison yeah. points. I think it's. I'm. I'm the same with you. It's. It's really easy to to find examples of, of music journalism that lean into that uh, sort of lackadaisical approach, especially when it comes to comparison points with other other acts. It's always like, 
And I, I, I almost feel like it's an uphill battle for the for the artists that are being written about in the sense that no matter what, it's rare that they're going to say something where you're like, you fucking nailed it. That's it. You know what I mean? Because you're not... I'm able to, I guess the, the main reason that that's hard to nail is that no band has ever... I mean, well, I'm sure some of them out there, but I, I don't think of Glass as trying to emulate anybody. So it's... I don't think that there's ever a comparison point that's going to make perfect sense because, you know, like I've said, I, I just think you guys sound like Glass, which is the best thing you could strive for as a band. Um, but, you know, when it comes to music journalism, I feel like that's a super common uh, just quality of writers in general is to sort of lean into those basic talking points that really whittle it down too much and uh, sell it short overall. Yeah. But, you know, at least they're writing better than if they didn't give a shit, right? That's true. <laughs> but, dude, you know, I know that you, you know, you mentioned, you know, it seems like you've been so productive, but then there's these four years, but, you know, from my recollection, those four years, a lot happened for you, man. Like, you know, think about how many times you moved and, and then, because, you know, there was your, your time in Athens and back to back to Green or Greenville or Piedmont. And then more recently, Sam, your drummer, has relocated to Columbia, which, you know, considering all... And, and Ari isn't playing with you guys anymore. You guys have a new bassist now. And, like, it just, you know, if you take in the full scope of all of the moving parts that have happened around the collective group of people that form glass that window of time in between records is absolutely fair you know and it seems like that entire time yeah you may not have been putting records out but you were writing your ass off you know i mean you you wrote all of that material like to me your output isn't as uh it doesn't define a band as much as your like your time spent stewing on material, you know? Like, if you're if you're actively thinking with your, like, the creative side of your brain, like, that is just as productive and crucial as your, you know, setting a release date, you know? Yeah, well, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's not really true. I mean, after Accent came out, I actually record, Sounding in Fathoms and Feet, um, the last album we put out, I actually recorded that before Accent came out. Whoa, I did not know that. Yeah, that was written and recorded uh, in in one night. I mean, it's, it's pretty much... And those are the improv- recordings that came out, or did you re-record them, or is it all from that session? No, that, it's all from that session on that porch that we hung out in that one time where you stayed with us oh, in yeah. Athens on, on an iPad wow. in... That's in, in, hard to believe. It does not sound like an iPad. Dude, I know. It's it's like it's my favorite fucking I love how that shit sounds and yeah, just the built in microphone like on, on the iPad and an acoustic guitar sitting outside uh with uh uh with um with beer and the uh Bataclan massacre that had happened that day on my mind. Yeah, uh, I mean First off, from a production level, that's pretty remarkable and kind of awesome to hear. And makes me want to buy an iPad now. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not sure if I would do it again. It was definitely 
Lucky. Might have been one of those times the stars were just aligned for the for that internal mic to to do you justice that night. And there's oh, something, there was something magical about that porch, man. Like oh yeah, I remember we, uh, walking into that house and just being struck by like. I mean, it was part the feng shui, but the house just had good bones, man. It was a cool little house. Yeah, we, we yeah we 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 talk about that house a lot, and all our friends are always just like, yeah, we love your house now, but man, that Athens house was the fucking shit. <laughs> yeah, man. and. And it, and it was, yeah, a, fire, a fireplace outside in the porch, you know, it was, it was great. But yeah, uh, back to what I was saying, that, that that was recorded before Accent came out anyway. So, anyway, what I'm trying to say is after Accent, there was a huge creative, um, um, lag for about a year or so. It was really... A really lazy time. I, I was drawing a lot, and I was writing little lyrics and phrases down throughout that year. But I wasn't. I was almost scared of my guitar and the music room I had set up in Athens. It was like going in there. It was just I had a sense of dread. Like it just was not. It was an extremely creative low. It was really just coming back to Greenville when I wrote all this stuff. Like my my acoustic app. We came back in 2017. And I think I wrote the first song for my acoustic album at Corvine at the end of 2017. So it was really coming back to Greenville, I think, uh, that really, really set it all off again for me. And I've had creative, uh, uh, I've had creative highs and lows since then, but not not to that extreme. Right. Well, I, I, I kind of feel like. You know, it's definitely, I'm glad that you're out of that rut, but I feel like to a certain extent that rut may have informed some of the stuff to come right after it. And, you know, I think that if you are stuck in a rut or if you're, like you mentioned earlier, describing it as like a artistic depression, like the best thing that can come out of it is that it's put to good use in the, in the material and... I, I think you. I think that happened, man. I I think you should be really proud of, of everything that's come out since then. And I mean, I, I just can't wait to hear the the records that you're about to work on next, man. Oh yeah, they're they're fucking they're so good, man. The the, the next one is uh, I, you know I I don't have a problem saying it. it's like I love our shit. Like I listen to it all the fuck time. Dude, uh, I think you should. I think that everybody should be making the music they want to hear, you know? Like if you that's the that should be step 1. And then if anybody else gives a shit about it, it's like it feels extra special cuz you made it to serve yourself and your your creative agenda and then that's what makes the human quality of of someone else loving it a little more special because it wasn't tailor made for anybody but the band itself. It makes it where if somebody else is drawn to it, it's just organic and you know, you guys are far from the type of band that does any sort of audience pandering, you know? Well, I, and I, I think really the only person I've ever heard, I, I feel like a lot of artists, a, a lot of people say, no, I never listen to my stuff after it's out. Like Scott Walker would be like the most extreme version, you know, in the studio, he like listens to the record full blast in the fucking studio. Like after it's done and then he never, ever, 
listens to it again, which, you know, I believe, you know, if, if, if other people said that, I wouldn't believe it. But I think a lot of people are kind of, kind of half and half between it. It's like, no, I'll listen to it sometimes or whatever. But the only person who I've actually heard uh, blatantly say something like that was in that new Frank Zappa documentary that came out uh, a week or two ago. When I watched it, it he, he just said, you know, I, why, why, like, yeah, like what you said, it's like why I record music is so that I can listen to it. <laughs> like, no one says that. I, I, I feel like I, I don't think anyone really says that. It's a refreshing take to to hear yourself and, yeah. and Frank own up to it because I don't know. I I agree with that approach. I mean, I think both the, both are fine. You know, if you I it makes perfect sense that Scott Walker isn't listening back to it, but uh, but at the same time, yeah. like I you know I don't see any shame in enjoying your own music. I think that it's you know, that's something to strive for too, you know, why it, it's, it would bum you out if you didn't enjoy it. And I, and I don't think people like Scott Walker don't enjoy, didn't enjoy the, his own music, but I I think it's maybe, you know, it's just a different approach that I don't think there's any right or wrong. Like he said, uh, you should always be willing to approach it. However, the moment deems, you know, appropriate. Um, but man, I, I, uh, you know, I almost feel like we should be just making this a standalone episode. I feel like there's so much I want want to pick your brain about. Um, but before it, before I let you go, I guess one of the, one of the things that kind of I don't know how I after knowing you this long, I don't know how it hasn't come up already. But I don't even really know the backstory of like, you know, what age, how old were you when you first came over to the states, and like what was the what was the context for that? Was it was it your whole family, or did you come by yourself? I mean, I know this is a big can of worms to open up at the you know at the forty five minute mark here, but uh, I would absolutely love to hear that story. Considering I feel like it's something I've should have picked your brain about one on one outside of the podcast world years ago. Oh yeah, well, well, <clears throat> well. I feel like we, we've never a lot of people who live in different towns but play shows together never really get the chance to have long conversations that often anyway which is why this this is kind of nice even though it's one-sided but um yeah i i uh <clears throat> yeah it's it's complicated when i was i was born in croydon uh in south london um um my mother is from Ireland and my dad is from Thornton Heath or Croydon area of South London. And, uh, so I was born there and, um, I lived there until I was four until they broke up. And then when I was four, me and my mother went back to Ireland to live with my grandparents, uh, her parents, uh, r- rural Ireland, the, the, the least populated county in Ireland, ca- County Leitrim, uh, in uh, Connacht, uh, the, the rural Midlands, but people people call it the west of Ireland because it's in Connacht, which is the, the, the western 
area of five counties in Ireland. And uh, I lived there for two years. Um, and during that time, uh, my mother was working third shift in a factory. And uh, yeah, that's it. We were living. Uh, it was me and my mother and her siblings and my grandparents. <clears throat> um, what? Well, no, my, sorry, my grandmother. My, my granddad on my mother's side died in 96 when I was two. Um, and so my mother was working uh, in a factory there in Leitrim called Masonite, which was a, uh, a particle board manufacturing company, um, which was pretty much and pretty much still is the, the main uh, workplace in that region. Um, and my stepdad, or my, my dad, he's my adopted, he adopted me when I was seven. I call him, I call him my dad, I guess my stepfather, I suppose. Um, he met my mother when I was five or something because he, he was an American. He's an American man. He's from Buffalo and he was working uh, for that company uh, in Ireland at that time trying to, I don't really know why, but it's just, it's just that kind of thing where, you know, people travel for work or whatever. Um, and they met and they fell in love and and uh, then my grandmother passed in 2000 in a car accident and soon after that uh, we moved to Scotland um, because of uh, his work so I was six or seven at that time so I always identify myself as Irish. Uh, I've always, I've al I always say I'm from Ireland, uh, but it's it's just kind of confusing, you know. It's uh, I did the ancestry thing or whatever, and it's uh, pretty much 100% Irish. So my mother's side is Irish all the way back. I have a suspicion that we're of Norman blood from the 12th century, but I don't know that. And on my on my on my dad's side, um. His parents are from Ireland, too, counties Mayo and County Westmeath, and they moved to Ireland when they were really young, like 14 or 15 or 16 or something, just because where they were living, there was just fucking no jobs. In, in Ireland forever, there would just be no jobs, so especially in rural Ireland, a lot of, a lot of people just uh, go to England for work. Uh, maybe they'll go to England for four or five months or something, or or maybe, maybe less than that, maybe a couple of months, and send money home while they're there, and then come back and then go back to England for a while. Um, but my grandparents were there, and they, they stayed in England uh, until the end of their lives. My grandmother on that side has since passed, uh, but my grandfather on that side is still alive, which is uh, my musical source. He's him and my my dad are pretty much the only uh, musicians in my family, and it's his, it's his guitar that I still play. That Les Paul I play, it's his guitar. Oh wow, man! And, uh, I didn't realize yeah, he, realize that. <clears throat> That's incredible. Yeah. I just assumed from your guitar center days you snagged one off the off the rack. That's a, a way better story. Yeah, that, that, that's his guitar, and he, he used to have a band called the Silver Sands. I I actually don't know what kind of band they were. They were either like an 
Irish band, but I think there's a really cool picture I've got I've got of him like back in the seventies or eighties where he looks like fucking Elvis and he's got like two singers with like Ronette's hair standing next to him. So I I don't know. I think they were like a rock and roll band, but they might have done some Irish tunes too. Or they they might have been a country and western band. Like I Irish people love country and western music. That that, that that's really big over there. Anyway, um um so yeah, we moved to Scotland when I was six or seven and uh to the uh cathedral city called Dunblane. Uh, which is, um, there, there's Edinburgh and there's Glasgow and uh, Dunblane is kind of, I might get this wrong, but I, I it, it, it's, if there's a line between Glasgow and Edinburgh, Dunblane kind of makes a tr- an upside down triangle out of it. So it's closer to England than um, Glasgow and Edinburgh, but it's still a good bit away from from England and we we went there because of his work and we were there for 10 years and he always says he'd never planned on uh, staying in Scotland for that long you know he uh, he he wanted to come back to America as as, as soon as possible and um, but yeah we were there, there for 10 years and that, that, that's where I started doing guitar lessons and stuff like that and uh, there wasn't really any other musicians around at that time but that's why I really grew up. Like I really grew up in Scotland uh, from the age of like six or seven to 16. And that's where uh, I'd say I, pro- I probably understand Scottish people more than anyone else. Like I'm still trying to figure out American people and what they're actually like. I find them very confusing. I, I would imagine uh, part of that is just because some of those most formative years were spent in Scotland, you know? So like when you were figuring out who Aaron was, when your personality was really you know, reaching full form or at least, you know, the earliest version of a fully developed Aaron personality kind of came to in Scotland. So it's, it, that makes perfect sense to me, man. Yeah, definitely. And that, that's where most of my friends are. I mean, I've really, really lost contact with almost everyone. Um, a lot of them seem like they're like communists now. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, I've lost contact with them. Uh, every now and again, I'll send them send them an email, but uh, I really miss it there. Dunblane was a lovely, lovely place, like such a nice town. And um, you know, when I when I was there, I kind of developed this. Uh, you know, I, I have an album called Accent. You know, it's my whole my accent and uh, identity and stuff is not to be too self indulgent. Um, has always been something that I've struggled with it's like when I when I was in Scotland I when I was hanging out with my friends I, I developed this Scottish accent but then I'd come home to my parents and I'd speak in an Irish accent again and when I go back to Ireland to see my family in Ireland I'd speak in an Irish accent and they would say oh you'll never you know they would say you'll never use lose your Irish accent <laughs> uh, well, somehow no you've not ever picked up any sort of well at least not that I've detected you don't have a southern drawl that's uh that's creeped in yet after despite your many years over here man well i've you're really the only person that said that uh honestly uh, everyone else says that uh that i do have pretty much an american accent especially in ireland when i go back they're like oh you sound like an american now Which, <laughs> i guess uh, maybe i maybe just depends on the ears right 
Yeah, I suppose. Which you know, for a long time, get you know, was a great source of pain for me. Like it, it made me almost feel like I had weak character or something like that, or like I had forgotten about where I'm from or something like that. But, but I, it just kind of got confusing. When I moved to America when I was 16, it was like. I almost had to make a choice. It was like, am I going to, when I meet people in America and I'm going to speak in this Scottish accent or I'm going to speak in America or uh, Irish accent, which, <laughs> which I picked the Irish accent. Yet I think I sing in more with more of a, uh, a Scottish, um, um, accent. And even when I read my, whenever I read my, lyrics out loud which is something i do a lot i just read my lyrics out loud uh, just to myself a lot and i adopt a different accent i adopt a more a more scottish accent which is just something which has been really confusing for me and uh you know I, I work for the water company here now with a bunch of fucking country boys who i love they're, they're great but you know they're gun-toting country boys for sure and uh, since i started working there some people have told me that i have almost have like a redneck accent <laughs> and, <laughs> I think that's a, a uh, stretch that might be selective hearing. Maybe, may but uh, you know, I, as I'm getting older, I'm just learning to more and more accept that I think I just have, because of my kind of strange and unique uh, situation, I just accepted that I think I just do have an accent that fluctuates, and I've almost fully accepted that. <laughs> I think it it's just part of the part of the package man I, I think it it's charming if if nothing else but and i and i i hope i'm not asking you to repeat yourself because i don't think you quite got there yet but i know you moved here when you were 16 and that you know that your your situation had changed you know you were saying some some of the your grandparents had passed and whatnot was was that sort of the you know was that sort of the the big factor in you moving over here or what what was the the main you know no it, thing that it, led it, to it, that? it it was my my dad's work my my stepdad's work uh, again i call i call him dad and i also call my my dad dad so um no it, it, it was his work um for sure my my um i i haven't asked uh my mother if um you know how much of a factor her mother's death was in in us moving to Scotland from Ireland, but uh, no, that it it really wasn't. It was, uh, you know, my dad being American, right? Um, he had always planned on coming back and didn't expect to spend ten years in Scotland. So, well, when you came over it, here, it, was it was it was Greenville the the first spot, or was it more the yeah. Buffalo area? No, Sim- Simpsonville. Okay. Green- Greenville, Simpsonville. It was, we were in Simpsonville for like six months and then Greenville. Yeah, th- this is the only place we've been. Gotcha. Well, man, yeah. I am really, really, really glad that we decided to mid, mid-chat mid here, switch gears and kind of, you know, I, as much as I wanted to pick your brain about that song, as soon as I uh, hit you up about doing that, I was like, man, we really should just have Aaron for a, a you know, a long form thing and not just, it just wouldn't do justice to your story to just talk about that song. I mean, I, I saw Brett Nash last night who has quickly become the most regular guest host of the podcast for good reason because 
he's one of the greatest human beings. But uh, we we uh, were able to chat for a little bit last night, and we were talking about how you know it's the podcast. It's kind of a unique opportunity, and like like you mentioned earlier about how. Yeah, it feels one-sided sometimes, but that's the thing is like, you know, if, you know, me and you've hung out for an hour or two hours or however long an episode could, you know, be in length plenty of times, but it's a little weird for me to be like, hey, do you want to get a beer on your porch and tell me your life story? (laughs) You know what I mean? It's a, it's an easier, uh, I guess it just, it's more natural to, to ask people to, to go into great detail about themselves and their and their backstory here, and I don't know, man, I, 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 it adds a lot to just my general understanding of where you're coming from to, to know all that stuff, so. Oh, yeah, be- yeah, beautiful, man, I, 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 uh, I, I really appreciate it, and, uh, yeah, like I said, when I saw that Open Concept was the first track in the compilation, I was like, you know, we, we were really, really happy with that, and, uh, again, just, uh, know that what you're doing just in general doesn't go uh unnoticed you know you're doing a lot for uh bands around here and and other bands and artists that aren't from here so uh good work and yeah keep it up it's good well man the feeling is mutual like i said i mean uh you know you guys are making me want to record more and uh, you know it's it's funny it's like this year is you're simultaneously missing all of your favorite bands, but then sometimes you're lucky enough to have your favorite bands put out three records that year, and it's like, yeah, I, I haven't gotten the chance to see Glass play live, but I've been able to listen to a lot of Glass this year, and, you know, that's a pretty good way to take the edge off of it. But, man, once you know, if the dust ever settles on this shit, we got to set something up. I think it's we're overdue for, like, a string of dates together, uh... Not to put you on the spot on mic here, but it would uh, be a dream come true to be in a world where touring made sense again, period. But if we uh, were able to do some of that together, I think it'd be pretty special. Let's do it. Cool, man. Well, Aaron, thanks for coming on the show, man. And uh, I'm just excited for everything you guys are doing, man. Let's let's stay in touch and try to find any and every excuse to collaborate. I'm in it if you're in it, man. Oh well, thank you, Dylan. Yeah, let, let's uh, absolutely make a make a commitment to speak to each other more. Yeah, man. Well, sounds good. Have a great night, man. And yeah, let's chat soon. Okay, Dylan. Thank you. See ya. All right. Bye. All right. You want to throw some tags on there? This has been a Comfort Monk production. <laughs>